what I think we do, what we try to do is give people the language to talk about these struggles in addition to and within the context of their struggles as an entrepreneur, their normal day-to-day psychopathology, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And not isolate those two, but understand that those experiences go together. And very often that's where the superpower lays. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I wish someone would just put a bullet in my head. There I was, shocked, 12-year-old. I remember it was evening, and the house was cool and dark, and the darkness had kind of snuck up on us as the sun had gone down. I can still feel the way her words ended up in my gut, almost knocking me to my feet. I can still feel the helplessness, fear, and sadness rising up within me. I can still see the look on her face as the words left her mouth. All the anger and pain, the shock, the fear, and the deep, deep sense of shame. I had no idea what to do or to say. But how could a 12-year-old possibly know what to say when his mom says something like that to him? And my mom was in deep, deep pain. In the separation with my father, some very, very deep and lifelong wounds had been plucked open. But I think even worse for her, And what was so hard for me to watch was the sense of shame that she carried. She was burdened by this belief that somehow the pain she was feeling and the self-doubt and the fear and the sadness were all proof of her brokenness. And it was almost too much for her to bear. But now I know it didn't really have to be that way. Pain, self-doubt, sadness are not proof of our brokenness. They are proof of our humanness. My mom ultimately learned this through a lot of work with groups and in therapy and reading and retreats. But really what it was, in other words, is she was able to meet with other humans who were willing to be open and vulnerable about their own sense of brokenness, to be open about their humanness. And they showed her that she wasn't broken and she wasn't alone in feeling this way. And my mom was fortunate to find the support that she needed to get through those tough times. But not everybody who goes through these types of experiences is so fortunate. Our guest today, Sally Spencer Thomas, lost her brother Carson to suicide when his pain and his shame became too much for him to bear. Sally founded the Carson J. Spencer Foundation, named to honor her brother, in order to deliver innovative and effective suicide prevention programs and to provide people with the kind of help that perhaps her brother didn't have. And I know firsthand how valuable this work is. It's the kind of help that I really believe helped my mom from ultimately acting on those words that shook me so deeply as a 12-year-old, still do today. In this powerful and important discussion, Sally and Jerry explore her story, her work, and her own moments of struggle and transition. She and Jerry talk about the reason they really do the work that they do. Enjoy. My name is Tracy Lawrence, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Choose. I think that there is no better way to spend your money 
if you want to enhance your leadership. And I mean, really not just enhance and change your leadership, but just to transform your life. You know, one of the things I've come away from boot camp with is thinking about how can I approach my business with curiosity as opposed to stress and grief and anxiety. And even to make that single, what seems a very simple transformational leap was not possible to me before boot camp. And so boot camp was just crucial to doing that. It changed my life, not just my business. When was the last time you invested in yourself? Join us this November 9th through 12th at the Reboot Retreat Center in Boulder, Colorado for our women's boot camp. Learn more and apply at reboot.io slash women. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really, it's really wonderful to have you on. It's great to meet you in person. Likewise. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. Before we get started, why don't you take a few minutes and just introduce yourself. This will allow the listeners to get a sense of your voice as well. Not that your voice and my voice sound the same. But, yeah. uh, so I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. I'm a psychologist by training, but I'm here for a number of reasons today. Yeah. I, uh, um, I lost my brother to suicide in 2004 after I'd been in the field of mental health about 16 years, if you mm-hmm. count undergraduate. That was a pretty big life-changing event, obviously. Um, and kind of in that moment, my my true calling of getting involved in suicide prevention emerged and I could think of doing nothing else. Um, so over the past 12 years, I've been working in ways to innovate in suicide prevention and have uh, launched a company on his honor called the Carson J. Spencer Foundation and a number of initiatives mostly focused on things that were related to his story. So working mm-hmm. aged men, um, suicide prevention in the workplace and um, things that would catch the people that are falling through the cracks, and mm-hmm. including a social entrepreneurship uh, program for youth. Mm-hmm. And I myself, um, I live with my own struggles with anxiety and depression and mm-hmm. so forth. Welcome so, to the club. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So all of those threads yeah. bring me here today. Yeah, yeah. And there's, uh, there's another attribute, I think, which is that you're in a life transition yourself. That's right. Around career. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had an aha moment uh, about a month ago mm. that uh, while I was uh, on the other side of the world, um, it just became very clear to me that it was time for mm. me to move on from this thing that I created and loved to uh, do something new. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been quite a journey for the mm. last month, uh, mostly good, but also like a big step into the unknown. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, when we originally started talking about you coming on the show, the majority of our guests are folks who come on to talk about, say, those that last piece, this sort of entrepreneurial endeavors that they're under and, and really take advantage of the time together to, to, in effect, have a coaching session. But yours is a multifaceted story. And um, uh, so what I'm, what I'm thinking might be helpful is to let's start at that uh, if you don't mind, let's start with your brother's story. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and that experience and then how it led to the foundation and all. Yep. Uh, so my brother was a 34-year-old businessman and entrepreneur himself uh, here in Denver. Younger brother. He was born Christmas Eve. Uh, 
and he was my first memory. My he was I was told he was my Christmas present. So, mm-hmm. um, we were really close growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, how much younger than you? Two and a half years younger than I am. And I was kind of the more nerdy academic scholar type and he was the charismatic knock it out of the park type um who got himself into a whole bunch of trouble when he got to school college um got himself kicked out for a year and um in that year uh he received the diagnosis of bipolar condition Mm -hmm. and this was late 80s nobody was talking about this and uh during that year he said yeah i don't know what this bipolar thing is Mm -hmm. but i am fine and i will be fine and in that year, he took a job selling encyclopedias door-to-door, which no one even knows what encyclopedias are today. But it's a pretty miserable job. Um, but he had such a gift of uh, influence and sales. And really, it was around building trust with people that by the end of that year, he had a three-state sales team and took his team to Hawaii and Rome. And anyway, he was on the road to success. And... Um, he got a whole bunch of other diagnoses in between, but I really think that original one was the one that was true for him. And he just managed it um, in many different ways. Sometimes he would go get talk therapy and medication. Uh, a lot of times um, we would pass cassettes back and forth in the mail. He was living in it. It's another thing that people <laughs> right. won't know what we're talking about. That's right. <laughs> I was in graduate school out here at the University of Denver um, learning, you know, the therapy du jour or whatever, coping strategies and medications and stuff. And he was in Atlanta working for a multinational insurance company. And he would send me rambling uh, recordings of um you know, what he was going through, a lot of anxiety and self-doubt, and I'd send him back, you know, tips and whatever. All via cassette. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, and he tried a bunch of stuff. He also self-medicated a lot with alcohol and marijuana and stuff, but nobody knew. They just saw this incredibly magical, gifted person. And in his mid-20s at some point, he just said, why am I working so hard to make money for you guys? I'm going to go out and create a competing company. And right. Launched his own company at like 25. And he was incredibly successful. Um, and then 2004 hit. And for a reason we don't fully understand, he had his first full-blown episode of mania. Mm. So it was not containable mm. at that point. And he went through his life like a train wreck in mm. a very short period of time. And, you know, it, it was horrifying. I, uh, I remember feeling incredibly helpless, even mm. though I had all of this education and all this all these networks of people to help me I just uh, I kept saying what do I do Mm. and they all said you have you say no he's not threatening suicide or that he's going to hurt anybody else you just have to wait until the train crashes Um, and it did uh, after months and months of reckless spending and really bad business decisions really classic mania total classic you know not sleeping and dangerous behavior um his accountant sat him down and said you're done you're broke you have no access to any more money Mm. and he uh flipped from this real agitated state to the worst depression we had ever seen Mm. he was so filled with regret and remorse um he came back to the family we'd been estranged for a couple of months um and i really believe in hindsight he came back to say goodbye because uh, we only he was only with us for like two and a half weeks, and um, he last time I saw him was a Thursday night. 
Um, all of us had read the book, The Unquiet Mind by Dr. Kay Redfield Jameson. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And, and she's an amazing writer. She is. There's very few people who have that level of intelligence who can write so such like a novelist that engages you fully and just being with her in that experience. And so, and I was like, there's this other incredibly accomplished person who, um, like you, has been through something similar. And here's the good news. She's like, she's figured some stuff out and we will too. And he just said to me, Sally, it's madness. Mm. And four days later, he died of suicide. And um, I don't know. Of course, I can't ask him what he was trying to tell me, but I have a pretty good idea. He was a very determined, self-made man who had been through other emotional struggles in his life and found his way through. But I believe because his episode of mania was so public um, that he lost hope, not that he couldn't get better, but that he couldn't get his life back again. That his business partners wouldn't trust him again and his friends wouldn't look at him funny. and um, To the shame. Yeah. And he just felt so alone. Like this was 2004. There's, there weren't the Bradfelds or, you know, other people who, you know, he would have vicarious respect for who were out with their stories. There was nobody. Right. And he just felt so alone and so ashamed. So, um, on the night that he died, my, I was really good friend and business partner from Atlanta called up my brother's wife and said, Oh my God, what can I do? And he said, no matter what you do, she said, don't let him be forgotten. So it was literally on that night that the ideas for forming the Carson J. Spencer Foundation were born. And by January, this man had convened all my brother's closest friends from across his lifespan and my family, which my parents were only children. My brother was my only sibling, so we're small. Um, And we just got on conference calls and I made a resolve Mm -hmm. to do bold gap-filling work to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people and when possible to celebrate his life Mm -hmm. and find ways to do this work in an entrepreneurial way using innovation and when we could a smidge of humor and so that's where we started and it was starting with nothing I mean people hear the word foundation and they think we were were a wealthy family that just you know started with all this money but we started with zero Um, and we were able to build some really cool um, projects that I, so, I, I, yeah. I I really want to hear about the foundation, yeah. but can we go back yeah. a little bit? And I just want to honor that story. Thank you. You know, um, you said it at one point, and I started to feel it before you said it, because I can relate to it in my own life. That. Um, as, as listeners know that I've struggled with my own uh, suicidal impulses and my own depression, but there's another side to this, which I think you touched upon, which is, so here we are. Look at us. We got trained. Look at how good we are. And the helplessness that we feel when someone we love is struggling. Yes. Yes. There's, a, there's an old Buddhist tale of a mother who's watching her child uh, uh, lost in a river, a raging river, and she's stuck on the shore, armless. Yes. 
And that, that image always strikes me. Um, here we are trained. Here you were um, passing cassette tapes. Yeah, with all my expertise. With all your expertise. And, uh, you know, I'm going to imagine that as a psychologist, you know the self-care that you needed to do around this. Um, but for those listening, just a reminder that they have a journey too. And we have a journey. And there's only that which we can do. Right. And, and we have a responsibility to be informed. We have a responsibility to help overcome, for example, what Carson had to contend with, which was on top of his own self-described madness, the shame and the isolation. I mean, for God's sake, if we do nothing else in my lifetime, but, it, but undermine the isolating shame so that we clear the way for professionals to get in and help, or peers. Or peers. Yeah. yeah. I'd say it was the, you know, the shame that killed him more than the, yeah. the psychological and emotional pain that he was experiencing, which was tremendous. Yeah. It was the shame. It was the shame that brought, killed him. You brought up a good point that I don't want to forget to comment on, and that is about the, you know, the professionals. Yes. Yeah. Um, because that was, that was definitely part of the early journey. It was, uh, and still, um, so... Uh, humbling to say, you know, we mm. were so trained, right? To have your professional boundaries up and you're the expert and, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. you have this. And honestly, I had a great graduate education, but the training for mental health professionals around this topic in particular is totally yeah. horrible. I mean, if we get any training at all, that's about how not to get sued, you know, how to protect yourself and that you should be very fearful mm. of clients who are suicidal. So I had mm. no knowledge. And, but the more profound level was, um, it's not us and them, you know, it's us, you yeah. know, that they're, they're, that all, we all have a story and that at some point, all the professionals, all the experts will be brought to their knees by something that they didn't expect or something that was yeah. overwhelming. And it's very humbling. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the mantras that of the work that I do, whether it's, uh, on this podcast or, or in a coaching session or in a workshop. Um, you know, I made reference to the CNN story that I did. If, um, you know, there, there's this moment where sometimes with my Brooklyn aggressiveness, I'll say, well, that's bullshit. Or sometimes with my Buddhist compassion, I will sort of lovingly reach out. But there's this moment where I realize that we are allowing or, or in effect hiding from the emotional experience and the pain of what these sorts of topics do and allow us to create a kind of intellectual disassociation from what is happening. And, um, sometimes I get angry about that because in my heart, I feel like it feeds the shameful, unintentionally feeds the shameful isolation 
and 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 yet I am cognizant that um, those of us who are in relationship with people who struggle, either as a helping professional or as a colleague, um, you know, here you are at work and your co-founder is going through something and you don't know what to do, right? And, and um, I'm often reminded in those moments of a story that my dear friend and someone I admire deeply, Parker Palmer, tells about his own experience with depression. And he, I first read about this story in his book, Let Your Life Speak, in which he talks openly about his own struggles with depression. And he, he tells the story of his friend and neighbor, Bill. And Bill would come over every afternoon as, as Parker would sit, you know, in a kind of darkened room in the chair. And Bill would just take Parker's shoes off and rub his feet. And as Parker tells the story, because that was where he felt he could be touched. And Bill wasn't a psychologist, didn't have any training. But Bill would just say things like, I see that it's hard today. I see you look a little brighter today. Would you like a cup of tea? And I'm reminded of the value of community. You know, you, you said something almost under your breath about how peers help each other. I remember uh, just a couple of days after he died, I, would, I was working at Regis University at the time, and we were right about break, and I'd been on maternity leave, so I was really disconnected. Um, but my supervisor... She said, she called me up and she said, where are you? And I said, I'm at my mom's house, which is in Westminster, just you know, a couple miles up the road from Regis. She said, just stay right there. I'm coming right over. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'll meet you in the driveway. You don't have to do anything. And I came out and she walks up the driveway and she's got this big vat of chicken soup. Mm-hmm. And she said, I know you're not eating. So... Uh, this has all the food groups in it, <laughs> and it can, you can get it down. And, and I swear, we were sustained by that bout of soup for the better part of that week. And it was that, you know, little touches of loving kindness. Right. Because there, also, there was also quite a bit of judgment that one, you know, like, you're a psychologist, you know, could you see this coming? Kind of, you know, small pits of that right. were bothersome. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the angels... That came forward. Some I knew, and some were strangers. You know, yeah, um, were really quite powerful. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, it's. Um, I'll be kind to the people who were judgmental in those moments and say that, in a similar fashion, perhaps out of their own fear of helplessness, right? And you know, I'm imagining they would say something like. Well, if she can't see the signs, then I don't have to feel responsible for not seeing the signs myself. And yet it comes across as an aggression. And, uh, it's just painful because it, 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 it breaks down the one thing that I think is every wisdom tradition has taught us, which is that community helps. Community doesn't stop 
depression, bipolarity, uh, mental illness, um, but community helps. Sure does. You know, you think about whenever you're in an overwhelming life situation. That's right. It's the people who surround you and just hold your hand or whatever, put their arms around you that get you through. That's right. The other things may help. That's right. Coping to some degree, but it's the people who love you that can carry you through. And when I think about my brother's kind of last months, um, because he had such pride about his business success and like he couldn't let anyone really in, mm. even when they wanted to, mm. you know, about what was going on with him. So he was so alone mm. Mm. during that those last few months. And he was beloved, like he just had a million. Mm. He was the kind of guy that would like light up the room. Everybody, mm. We called him the Pied Piper. Everybody would just follow him everywhere, mm. but he couldn't let people know. And that's, that's the irony of uh, a lot of folks with bipolar disorder is that they are the Pied Pipers. <laughs> you know, we, we, we are drawn in by the seductive quality of their uh, creativity, their energy, um, their, 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 at times, and many times, their absolute radiant confidence in their ability to, sure, I'll take on Walmart. Right. But the other thing that he had that I think was such a gift, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, was that within a very short period of time, you know, on a golf course or whatever, were cocktails, my brother would be able to kind of see into the soul of a person mm. and assess what was most important to them and also what they were struggling with. Like he was real, he was the real psychologist yeah. <laughs> um, and, and he would never forget that he yeah. had, like he would tuck it away yeah. and then he would see that person maybe five years in the future. And he's like, Hey, how's your kid doing in school these days? Oh. You know? And that's what made him so trustworthy. And he wasn't doing it manipulatively. He was genuinely like right. caring about people, right. but it also worked to his benefit for, from the business. Sure. Because it made people trust him. Yeah. Well, and I miss that so much. I miss that part of our relationship. In in language that we often use on the podcast is I I refer to that capacity as a superpower. And as Marvel has done such a great job of teaching us, every superpower has a negative side to it. (laughs) And so you have to sort of. uh, So, so you took this experience and you turned it into the foundation. And the foundation, it's, it's been how long now? So 10 years? 12 years. 12 years with the foundation. And you've learned a few things, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, so in the beginning days, I was um, running the leadership program out of Regis. And so while my, my paid job was to teach leadership, like mm. my heart was like through cyberprevention. And so I blended the two things, Mm -hmm. which kind of was the theme that carried through in the evolution of the foundation is that um, it was pretty clear to me in the early part of my career that I was not meant to be a counselor or therapist. Mm -hmm. I'm an agitator and I don't like to sit around very long. So Mm -hmm. the idea of having eight hours of client time was, (laughs) (laughs) I just just couldn't do it. Not that we don't love our clients. I realized that there were great people who had that level of patience and it wasn't me. Yeah. But, um, but I could do things with the knowledge I had from my degrees or whatever to shift culture, to do that kind of stuff. So this learning period in the early days was really about how to connect the things we know about 
effective leadership mm. with this issue that is so swept under mm. the carpet yeah. and how to put those things together and really look at cultural change and systems change and what, what were some of the big levers we could pull to mm. make a difference. So the first most obvious one was my brother I had no idea. This was one of the gaps in, in my learning. I had no idea my brother was the prototypical person. Yes. To die of suicide. And if you ask the general public, even if you ask most mental health professionals, they'll be like, no, 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 it's, you know, at-risk kids. Yeah, you right, know? right. But no, it's white working-aged men with a diagnosable mental health condition. Be- between age 30 and 55. That's right. That's right. Right. Um, and... So I thought, well, there's a gap that needs to be filled yeah. because nobody's trying to reach these guys. Now, this is 2004. The military was starting to make some moves at that point, but for the most part, nobody was addressing it. So we thought, well, we reach kids in schools. We're going to reach the adults in the workplace. Um, so we launched the first workplace suicide prevention program, pulling from things that we knew uh, from other countries, actually, mm. where they had been successful and kind of adapting them, an Air Force model and, a, and an Australian model and so forth to kind of the everyday workplace and that kind of chugged along. Again, we're all volunteer, no money, no resources, you know, at a very slow pace. Mm. Um, and then we realized that we needed to go industry specific. So mm. we went first responders, construction, and then the latest foray has been into the startup space, mm. which has been really exciting to me. And I, I look back in my room and going, why did it take me so long to get here? Like, this is so... Gee, why did you avoid the... No. <laughs> was there any resistance there, doctor? <laughs> I know, you know, I don't know if there was resistance as much as readiness. Ah, uh, so yeah. the, the first yeah. responder community yeah. has data that says yeah. our guys are dying. And now construction also has data. The entrepreneurship, we don't... There's not like a one place to well and I, I think that there's a collective understanding that say returning vets yes uh, with PTSD right. and first responders again with PTSD right. um, I'm curious about construction mostly but, veterans there are a lot of ah, veterans yeah. gotcha yeah. gotcha and so what we have is this this correlation between past trauma whether it's full-blown PTSD or not past trauma unprocessed and the the um, Let's call it a, a cultural milieu where the already social acculturation of not talking about things, right? right? Terrence Reel's beautiful book, I Just Don't Want to Talk About It, about men in depression, it speaks to this really well. So you've got these milieus where this is happening. And in the first responder community, um, you know, our heart goes out to them immediately. We can immediately see how... A, an EMT who's dealing with life and death situations all day long might, in fact, be struggling. Yeah. But we don't necessarily think of entrepreneurs in the same light. Right, 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 right. Right, right. Yeah. And with the construction guys, I said mostly, but there's quite a few veterans in there. But the, um, the thing that overrides the cultures is kind of this stoic uh, risk-taking persona. Ah, um, so it's the stoicism yeah. plus risk-taking. Right. Gotcha. That's because I, I, I stand on my own. I'm, right. I'm brave and self-reliant I'm and I'm self-reliant, right? That's all, right. all right. through the three of them. And they, and that all three populations fear to tread where nobody else wants to go, like into burning buildings on top of, you know, high rises and, you know, risking their life savings to make some, you know, right. very few people have that level of risk. And so, um, we call it an acquired capacity for suicide because most people that's, um, a daunting thing. Like, 
yeah. I might entertain thoughts of not being here, but the idea of actually going through with it is way too scary. Mm -hmm. But for these risk-taking populations, it's just another thing that mm. they're not as scared about as most mm. other people, so mm. it's more risk. Mm. So anyway, workplace stuff um, has been uh, very rewarding. Um, but there was a larger cultural piece around how men had been conditioned to think about emotional challenges and um, mental health conditions in particular, which is, yeah, not me. Um, or as something to right. be overcome. Yes. If they get that far, if they get that, but it's mostly like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sick. I'm not broken. And I'm certainly not crazy. Right. Um, so, it's just a few drinks. Right. Right. It's just, or, a, right. I'm just under a lot of stress. Right. Right. So they interpret all of these. I haven't slept for a week. You know, I can't eat anymore. Um, as right. just a stress reaction and certainly can be triggered by stress, but at some point, it's more than just stress when, right. when um, a lot of kind of cognitive abilities and just daily functioning is just starting to fall apart. But because they're like, it's stress and I can manage it, right. they are least likely to reach out to anybody to right. let them know that they need some help. So uh, kind of another area that um, we, we were working in was how do we change that conversation? Mm -hmm. And so together with a full-service advertising agency in Denver called Cactus and the public health arm of the Office of Suicide Prevention, um, we created a campaign called Man Therapy mm -hmm. that uses humor uh, to engage men on the front end of mm -hmm. thinking about this differently in the privacy of their own mm -hmm. you know, computer or home and stuff. They can explore these things in mm -hmm. a way that seems congruent with how they think about stuff rather than, you know, some doctor in a white coat saying you need to take this medication. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. And they can self-assess and explore all kinds of resources that we've vetted to be more or less man friendly. Um, and, uh, and it's been quite powerful to find that humor was the way in. Right. Yeah. Cause then right. they pass it on to each other and right. um, it was really engaging. Uh, and then the last thing that we did that was probably, um, as true to the founder's vision as we could. And it was also my brother's expressed legacy before he died. Um, he wanted to um, create a scholarship to help high school entrepreneurs get to college because he really valued mm -hmm. education. Um, the last uh, effort that we did was to create social entrepreneur program for high school teens to create a business that was for profit that also did something fundamental around mental health promotion or suicide prevention. Um, and that's been a, a real joy to mm -hmm. watch. And I'm like, Hey, Carson, check it out. <laughs> 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 you know, these, these youth are amazing. Um, so yeah. it's been, it's been nice. It's um, what I'm connecting to in this moment is this, this notion of taking our personal pain and turning it into something that is uh, of service to the world. And, uh, you know, um, part of, part of the way that I heal on a continuing basis is to allow the expression of what my own journey has, has been about and to be open about it, thus overcoming my own internalized mechanisms for shame, but also to create, um, a model for language around it so that, um, there can be this sort of shared experience. And if I may, perhaps I'm projecting a little bit, but, but I, what I see you doing is something similar, mm -hmm. or I see what you've done is something similar, which is to take your experience and to take that pain and not quote, try to fix the problem, but create a platform for the community to come together around the problem. 
Does, and you're nodding and smiling. Yes. Does that language oh, work absolutely. for you? Uh, it's definitely been kind of this meaning-making journey of uh, pulling in other people with shared experiences um, to sort it out together. Yeah. Uh, so you get the community part, and yeah. then you also get the purpose. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. I, think, I think this is why I'm here. Yeah. Um, is to try to figure out what happened. Yeah. And shape it in a different direction. Yeah. I'm reminded of something someone once said to me at, a, at one of our boot camps. Um, you know, I owned up to uh, uh, what can feel like a self-indulgent piece, which was the, the notion of going back in time to being 38 and really struggling with my own uh, resurgence of depression. Because depression and I had got, have a long relationship. And, the, you know, as Churchill called it, the, 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 the black dog. You know, the black dog and I have been good friends. And, uh, you know, in my late 30s, feeling on top of the world, right, it came back, or at least perceptually on top of the world, it came back in a, in a very profound and life-altering way. And uh, when I shared that at the camp, someone at the very end, made me break down and cry by saying, you know, Jerry, I know that you keep talking about going back in time and trying to save that 38-year-old version of, of you. But I want you to understand that this weekend you saved a few lives. And that's probably overly generous. What I think we do, what we try to do is give people the language to talk about these struggles in addition to and within the context of their struggles as an entrepreneur, their normal day-to-day psychopathology, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And not isolate those two, but understand that those experiences go together. And very often that's where the superpower lays, is in that, is in that space, you know? Um, and that eventually... Yeah. It passes. And we don't have necessarily control over when, when the struggle yeah. gets alleviated. Oh, God, but when you've you lived said through it, so it a couple well. of times, yeah. you're like, okay, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but someday I'm going to be on the other side of it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to be like, okay, what did I learn? Yeah. 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 My 87 year old psychoanalyst with whom I've now worked for 25 wow. years. <laughs> right. And, and it's a funny relationship now because I'll go in and she's like, oh, you, you know, you're a pain in the ass. Like, well, you're a pain in the ass too, you know. It's really loving. It's beautiful. <laughs> she would often say, I would come in and I would say, oh, it's a bit bad day. And she says, don't worry, it'll pass. And then I'll come in and I'll say, oh, it's a good day. And she'll say, don't worry, it'll pass. <laughs> and there's actually beautiful, from a Buddhist perspective, bodhisattva wisdom in that, in the realization that, Good times will pass. Bad times will pass. Time passes. Time passes. When you're mired in these struggles, it's really, really hard, right, to recognize that. And conversely, when you're having a great time, it's really hard to not recognize the passing of that without anxiety, right? You may have this like, uh-oh, be careful, but to realize that the passing of a good times does not indicate that you're a screw-up or a fuck-up as a human being. 
And the trick is, for me anyway, mm-hmm. is to be as present as possible in the good times, knowing that they're not going to last. And have and and again, the Buddha's just to have gratitude and presence in That's that, it. you know, and say, okay, t- this moment is good. <laughs> That's right. And and the laughter. Like yeah. think about where we've just gotten to. Yeah. Right. We're we're talking about a difficult subject, but we're talking about it with love and compassion and humor. And it's like, oh, and community, right? These are the tools. These are the tools to get by, what did Freud call it? The psychopathology of everyday life. Oh, love, community, friendship, humor. And I think, well, my experience is that when you are going down the toilet, Mm. you lose that ability to experience the connection. I mean, I remember my, my first episode of depression it wasn't until 2012. I was, you know, in my 40s. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, I knew that the chances of my having something was pretty high. Right, given, you right, know, right. family history and, you know, just because it happens to about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, you know, it didn't happen after my brother's death. I mean, I had trauma. I had yeah. tremendous amounts of grief. But, yeah. I would, I did but it not, wasn't depression. It wasn't depression. That was... Right. A different deal. And it happened, you know, in the convergence of, you know, many, many life stressors. I had a health issue and I couldn't eat. So I had right. to, for like six weeks, sip all my meals, including like lasagna through a straw. So I was physically compromised. And then a bunch of work challenges that were really, really difficult. Um, and, uh, and my dog had a stroke. And But the biggest thing, so all of these things were converging. But the biggest thing for me was um, I had to make this matching Grant, mm. um, a, somebody had made a massive investment mm. in the foundation. We were nothing, and then all of a sudden, half a million, and we were something. Mm. But it was a matching challenge, and they mm. when they gave it to me, they're like, "We're investing in you, Sally Spencer." Thomas. Oh, geez, that sounds oh, yeah. great. Except, oh, 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 <laughs> and here we were marching up on the deadline of that matching challenge. And I'm like, "We're not going to make it." Uh, and I thought, "That's it. I'm done." And and I went into this. I just watched myself, like outside of myself, go into the dark tunnel and I couldn't, I couldn't cope. Like, you know, my usual coping strategies of things that I do when I'm stressed, nothing was working. I couldn't feel pleasure at all, which meant I couldn't eat and lots of anxiety. And, and I really felt like I was like my ability to generate solutions was my brain just couldn't come up with it Mm. at all. Mm. And I isolated and, and in my compromised thinking, I thought, well, I'll just work harder. Because that's what solves problems for me is if I just work harder. Right. Um, and, and can I point yeah. out that the other side of that thinking is I'm not working hard enough. Right. Right. It was the most, when I look back at it, it was, the, again, one of these humbling things, right? I knew what, you know, on some yeah. level I knew what I was going through and it was nothing like I'd right. ever gone through before. Right. right. I knew in my head what would have been helpful. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. And I could barely, I mean, I was just filled with fear and just all of these really debilitating things. And then two things happened. Uh, one, my father, of all people, very loving, responsible man, but not necessarily always the touchy-feely, emotional right, right. person, reached out to me and said, sweetheart, um, perhaps you should take some of your own advice and uh, go get some help. Mm-hmm. Right. 
<laughs> Schmuck. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I did. I went and I got some medication so I could sleep. Yeah. And once my sleep got re-regulated, then, right. then a number of things started to fall in place. But probably the bigger thing was I went to, you know, my my community's professional conference. Mm. And I was very compromised. Uh, and I was supposed to lead all these committees and do all these presentations. And I let a couple people in. I'm like, I'm not doing so well. Yeah. And what I got back was unconditional love. Mm. They're like, Sally, you don't, you don't have to do this work. You don't have to be in this leadership role. You don't have to do, we love you. Yeah. And you're so much more than this role. Yeah. And the, and like the world just put up a mirror and I was like, okay. Mm. And those two things together kind of put me back on a, on a new trajectory. I, I, I love that story. Um, it, it, it reminds me of an experience that I have often, and, and, I, and I hope I give it to my partners as well. You know, a lot of people uh, admire the work we do at this company, and we have a lot of sayings internally, one of which is, good work done well for the right reasons, which we've stolen from David White, the poet. But we also talk about using the work to do our work. And uh, the months, the time period from Thanksgiving through New Year's is oftentimes a very difficult time period. I'm one of those folks. Some of it is seasonal affective disorder. Some of it are just past memories and, you know, of, of difficult times. And this past period, you know, 2016 was difficult because my mother had passed away in September. And I was feeling the passing of time. Mm-hmm. siblings aging and you know my children becoming adults how dare they you know all of that and in you telling your story of your colleagues at the conference or even your father I'm reminded of Dan Allie and Khaled um, reaching in and Jim Marsden reaching in and taking care of me as well um, and saying things to me like you don't have to do that piece. You don't have to do that piece of work, Jerry. You know, um, uh, and as CEO of my little company, uh, our little company, I often falsely internalize a sense of responsibility for everybody else. So I will say, well, how's Dan doing? And how's Allie doing? You know, she's got that struggle with this going on. And college has been silent for a while. I better reach out for him. But I don't necessarily, um, we were actually having dinner last night talking about this. I don't necessarily even uh, allow myself to think of myself as needing their help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly where I was. Because it's like, yeah. not only do I have these mouths to feed that and, and this funder that I promised I would succeed on and yeah. my own little family and, oh my gosh, we're going to be homeless. Um, what's my brother? Like, yeah. this, this is the legacy that, yeah. you know, and like all of that was yeah. being so hard that, you know, the conclusion was just to buckle in and work harder. In. Right, right, right. Work harder. Um, and, and what I probably really needed to do was take a little bit of a leave yeah. <laughs> and get grounded again. Yeah. And, and kind of some things forced that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as things do, things fell back into place. Yeah. You know, but in the moment I had no clarity that that was even a possibility. It just felt the weight was so heavy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reminded of something you said earlier, which was that a, f- a month ago, I think you said, uh, you ha- you'd come to this conclusion that it was time. Am I remembering the words right? That's right. 
uh, when you talked about your growing children, um, this was an insight I had maybe a year ago where I have um, teenage boys now watching them emancipate Mm. as a mama, as a parent, you know, you're like, well, I guess that was what I was intending for to have happen. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm not ready. You know, I just want to go back to like play. And, but it's, you know, it's the definition of bittersweet. It is so bittersweet. And so about a year ago, I saw, I started to see that happen with the company. Mm. That we were moving, you know, we had moved from kind of this startup thing Mm -hmm. where, as the founder, my energy and ideas were kind of driving things to the place where we had to pull some infrastructure mm-hmm. in and some team members who could have their own leadership. Mm-hmm. And I started to say, oh my gosh, my company and my kiddos <laughs> and the same oh. like life transition thing, like nobody needs me anymore. So I started going through this grieving thing, um, both, at the, both at the same time of, and then who am I if I'm not their mama and I'm not at the heart and soul of this company anymore. Um, so that, that started happening. And then I, because of the nature of my role, um, we, we shifted my role to kind of upward and outward facing CEO, which is what I'm good at. Right. I'm, they call me the evangelist. I was out there right. championing right. Uh, attention around this issue and all of the management was back, right. um, back on the ground with the COO. Um, I, I started to feel like an outsider, yeah. uh, which was very disconcerting. Mm. wanting to be part of that family, but kind of being that the absent parent. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so this, this sadness, this grieving probably had been manifesting itself, whatever, coming for two years. Mm. And then a number of things started to implode mm. <laughs> uh, right here towards the tail end. And I thought, I, I need to go. Mm. And unlike the first time when I thought the company was having a challenge and it was you know so much of the weight of everybody on me I felt more of a release this to last time mm-hmm. that um, that I I'm able to do I'm able to bring my brother along with me in whatever I do and I can do go back to being the entrepreneur yeah that is really where I feel like my gifts lie yeah um, and maybe even do things that I wasn't able to do because they weren't mission centric in a bigger bolder way. Yeah. So I can I can tell you it's not been without anxiety. <laughs> you know, this little transition. But that feels here. appropriate. It is. And I and and while I labeled my other own experiences as depression and that I was immobilized by it, the anxiety here feels um it, at the level it needs to be yeah. for, you know, a big life decision like this. Yeah. Um and, and much more manageable. And also I have the hindsight of and this will pass <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, a, in a couple of days or weeks. I'm going to look back and say, okay, yeah. now what? And if I may, yeah. uh, I totally relate to the, to the experience. I, I feel myself stepping into a new threshold right now. Mm-hmm. Um, today is a day where we're doing a quarterly offsite with the partners. And, and there are all these, uh, what I'm relating to is the seasonality of our lives mm-hmm. and how there's a seasonality associated with our careers and that there are these, there are these movements. Um, there was a, a beautiful book I read last year called uh, My Father Before Me. And uh, there are two books by that title. So, and I'm forgetting the, the author's name on this one, but this one is a, is a nonfiction book about um, the parallel paths of separation and individuation that men 
and younger men go through. Men in their 50s, as I am, and younger men in their 20s, as two of my children are, um, go through. And there is this, what I'm sensing in you is this um, fear-producing, potentially joyful, potentially challenging time period of existential transition that maps what's happening in your personal life to what's happening in your professional life. Because guess what? The dichotomy between the two of those things is false, right? It's actually a construct, I would argue, of the post-industrial era where we go to work and we have our life and we have to have a balance between those two. So let's do yoga once a week. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, that's the bullshit piece of it. The, The reality is that to embrace the, the alignment that is possible in these movements, it's going to happen anyway. You're going to experience the seasonality of it. You're going to experience the existential challenges. And you said the question before, who am I? Right. The, the ultimate existential question. Who am I if I am no longer my children's parent? Who am I if I'm no longer defined by my relationship with my brother? Who am I if my professional career is no longer defined in opposition to or in accordance with? Who am I? And, and you know, there's a, a formulation we use here at, at the company, which is that it goes like this, practical skills plus what we refer to as a radical self-inquiry mm-hmm. plus shared experiences mm-hmm. equals enhanced leadership and greater resiliency. And as I often joke, I don't give a shit about your leadership. I care about your resiliency. Because if you're more resilient, you will be a better leader. Mm-hmm. Right? And what I'm experiencing and you're skilled, you're so skilled and, and aware of this because of your journey, the, the radical self-inquiry part, the, the, the practice of asking yourself, who am I in this moment? Because that's the thing that, that we often don't hold with that question. Not who am I now and forever, but who am I in this moment, in this season of my life, in this time of my life, and who am I tomorrow? And how does my work and my life lay in alignment with the answer to that question in the moment? Right? When we start from that place and are open and sharing it, then we have that community we were talking about before. And then the practical questions of, well, what do I do? Become a lot easier to answer. Because now you have a posse of people around you to say, you know what, Sally? You're really good at this, but you're not good at this. Does this resonate? Totally. I've actually um, brought a a little story back. So, um, for 16 years, I worked at Regis University, Jesuit Catholic Mm. School. I just spoke there a few weeks ago. And I'm not Catholic, but I learned so much um, from the Jesuits. And one of the practices that um, was very important to me during an earlier transition when I left Regis was uh, discernment Mm. and just sitting, Mm. listening to that small inner voice Mm. of who am I and where would I, where do I need to go? Where do you know that? Um, And when I did that, then it gave me clarity Mm. um, of what, I should and shouldn't be doing and 
and a sense of confidence that I didn't have before. Like, yeah, I'm leaping off the cliff here, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I'm staying true to me. Yeah. And, and that'll guide me in the decisions. And yeah. I feel that sense again now. And then uh, the other part that you brought up was, um, you know, people have this idea that if they're vulnerable, they're weak. Right? Mm-hmm. If we share our vulnerabilities, people will judge us. Uh, and what actually ends up happening is the opposite. Mm-hmm. When we when we have space where we can be our true selves and all the warts, you know, and all the self-doubts, um, people actually love us more. Yeah. You know, they respect, they respect that courage. They respect that openness. And then they also feel permission to do it themselves. And that bond that's developed is so much stronger. Yeah. Um, and that's what we have sacrificed in our so busy, must be productive, accelerated lives is that's that right. we, even more so than not working out and not eating well, we have sacrificed our true social relationships with one another. And if we are going to live fully engaged lives of that, there's a David White quote too about the, I'm going to get it a little messed up, but the antidote to exhaustion mm. isn't rest. It's fully engaged living. Yeah. 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 It's See, close to that. And, and you've given me a beautiful response to the whole question of work-life balance. You know, years ago I wrote a blog post called work-life balance is bullshit. And, um, I, you know, I told the story about how a reporter had called me to, to do, you know, what I often refer to as a kind of hit job, a quick job on work-life balance. Okay. Talk to the coach. All right. And I spat out in the phone, work-life balance is bullshit. And now I understand what it was that I was really trying to say. Because at the time, I talked about the fact that true balance is, is where the outer expression of who we are matches the inner expression of who we truly are. You, the outer expression of what we do matches the inner expression of who we are. But I've never quite been able to reconcile what are obvious um, things like, well, sure, self-care is really important. And we often throw self-care uh, into the bucket of work-life balance. But I think the insight that you just gave me was that when we are living in that David White expression of a full engagement, self-care becomes a natural, organic expression of who we are. Not something scheduled in. Like Not something class. scheduled in like a yoga class. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just how we live. And so in the midst, so, so for example, in the midst of a offsite with my partners, which I will be doing today, there will be self-care. Right? And so that's what, that, that's what I mean. Was like, can we create work environments where we have where where the ability to be our our authentic self is not something that's scheduled in or a mandated program coming from the HR department mm-hmm. for the next hour you will be real but in fact an interwoven expression of how we work such that we are whether we choose that self-care to be a beautiful, real conversation that we have with a colleague or a yoga class at mid-afternoon, it doesn't really matter. That's not the issue. 
Does this have resonance with yeah, you? Yeah, so it's not something we're forcing upon ourselves, but something that just comes naturally. So when you were talking about that, I thought in the last couple of years where I've been out and about, mm. I felt fully alive. I'm an adventurer. I love to travel. I love to meet new people. And I got up and did the thing I'm really good at and was vulnerable with strangers and mm. made new friends. Like all of that felt really good. And then I'd come home mm. and I didn't have a role in my own, mm. you know, in my own office. And I, 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 I had no ability to, to do things that made me feel good. Yeah. And, and, and after that went on for so, so long, I thought, uh, it wasn't hard to step away. Yeah. Well, that became, that yeah. became the, the, the signal to you right. that it's quote, time. It's time. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for this. This has been an extraordinary conversation and really a gift to me. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, one of my spiritual practices, I'll just close with this, is uh, marathoning, which is, I know Brad's yes. also, uh, yes. which is a little point of connection that we have there, but it's been you know, obviously I do it for physical fitness and helping regulate sleep and mood and everything. But honestly, each one is its own spiritual journey. And it's that mile 17 where you're so far in and you're so exhausted. Ah. And and you've got a really long time to go to get your little medal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I want to remind myself and the listeners is that in a mile 17 passes. Yeah. And you just keep going and pull from the energy of the other runners around you yeah. and you'll get there. Well, it, it's, it's been a delight. And just think of me as handing you a cup of water at mile 18. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please consider leaving us a rating on iTunes. Your rating is the single most effective way for new listeners to find and enjoy the show. You can also get all Reboot Podcast episodes by signing up at reboot.io slash signup. There's a link for that in our show notes. I am Dan Putt from Reboot, and you've been listening to the Reboot Podcast. Thanks for joining. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Ready for a more in-depth journey of radical self-inquiry? We've developed a new, free, five-day email course designed to explore and work with your shadow. Get started at reboot.io slash shadow.